If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This film is important to me for a few reasons, and I wrote a couple of them down because... I need to do this movie right. Like I need to be respectful (laughs) about this So I wrote a few things down, but I promise after that I will be off script and and chatting amiably, but I needed to make sure I got certain things out. Okay. (laughs) Welcome back to Open Forum. I'm Michael Denzel Smith. Loretta Castorini's first husband was hit by a bus and died after two years of marriage. She's convinced it's because they did everything wrong in the run-up to getting married, and she's determined not to make the same mistakes with her new beau, Johnny Camareri. But when Johnny asks Loretta to find his estranged brother, Ronnie, and invite him to their wedding, she runs into trouble in the form of a new, exciting, instant love born under the full moonlight. This week's film is Moonstruck, and was chosen by Marie-Helene Bertino, award-winning author of the critically acclaimed novel, Parakeet. Moonstruck was the first movie I saw that had an Italian-American female protagonist. Mm -hmm. And it was solely concerned with her desire, her loss, her decisions, Mm -hmm. and I think most interestingly, her mistakes. Um, Loretta is one of my favorite characters on film because she's trying so hard to fulfill her duties, be a good person, be a good daughter. Um, But her desire shows up in the form of the moon and Mm. the baker, played by a young, handsome, absurd (laughs) Nicolas Cage. Um, So the moon is a heavenly body and Nicolas Cage is a heavenly body. And I love that these heavenly bodies just refuse to let her settle. Mm. And I mean, they like literally disrupt her and... By settle, I mean they refuse to let her settle for less than she's worth. And so I love that Moonstruck's writer, John Patrick Shanley, knew that he was playing with archetypes like like these wild and stark archetypes like bread and the baker, mm-hmm. the moon, wolves, red roses. And I think that he, you know, was poking some fun at these staples, but also using them in these beautiful ways to even redefine them. Um, One of my major requirements to love a film is that it is in some way visually beautiful. Mm -hmm. Like even if it's ugly, that it uses the form visually. Um, And so I think Moonstruck is also visually beautiful. And one of the only films I can think of that tells the truth about um, that peculiar old world front room that exists in like the brownstones Mm. of Brooklyn and and also in Philadelphia, which is where I grew up. Um, And then why it's like personally relevant or or relevant, you know, a little more closer to uh, my particular vest is that um, when you think about the Italian American experience rendered on film, it's mostly mafia stories, yes. masculine stories, um, and the stories that are centered on maleness and machismo. I am part Italian, and mm. you know, I grew up with a with not a small amount of cognitive dissonance around why I didn't relate to the idea of Italian Americanness I saw in film. Mm. Um, I was growing up with an enormous wealth of feeling 
around being an artist and I didn't have much to look to as far as examples. Nothing I saw of the Italian American experience on film reflected the artistry I was very much longing to be part of. Um, yeah. You know, Goodfellas and Godfather are, and The Sopranos for that matter, are very interesting and captivating in their own ways. But until I saw Moonstruck, I was not proud to be Italian-American. Um, Moonstruck and La Dolce Vita from Fellini were the movies that named something that was growing inside me it could be weird and smart and feminine and femme and, um, and were located in this this friction between old and new and the friction of the old world immigrant experience uh, versus, you know, the new American sense of, of seizing the day and grasping love. So Moonstruck, you know, hit a lot of, hit a lot of important boxes for me in my growth as an artist. And I think I will stop there. No, I, I love it. I love to hear that. That's so, it's so uh, beautifully put. And something, I, I mean, just, you know, not being an Italian-American wouldn't have sort of, like, taken away from the film necessarily, I guess. But, I mean, okay. you're you're so incredibly right in that um, the, the depiction of Italian-Americans and Italian-American culture on film uh, especially is so masculine driven for the most part. And this is yeah. the, you know, not in, in, in Moonstruck, it's not only that you have the female protagonist, but uh, a female protagonist that is like older, quote unquote, um, and <laughs> still wrestling with ideas of love and loneliness and like making choices based on a lot of those old world ideas, but then being thrust mm -hmm. into modernity um, mm -hmm. via her her moonstruck love uh, with her fiance's brother. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I think about that and think about the, the way that, you know, Loretta is moving through that. She's uncomfortable quite a bit with the fact of that, like that intense passion. Like she's trying to make yeah. a practical choice after the passing yeah. of her, her first husband. She's like with this, this guy, Johnny played by uh, Danny Aiello, uh, who, you know, her mother asked her point blank, do you love him? She's like, no, I, I don't love him. And, and she's like, do you like him? And, and she's like, yeah, I like him. And, yeah, and her, it's fine. And her, and her mother approaches it pretty practically. Uh, and I think that that's a, a result of uh, her own experience, right? She's in love with her husband, but he's also cheating on her. And she's just like looking at the heartbreak that she is experiencing by having loved someone. Uh, yeah. And, you know, those things driving the story, just not something that I, you know, in, in Italian American stories, you usually get. Amen. And I was thinking, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts in preparation for this. And I, when I was trying to decide which movie I would request you to watch <laughs> I was like you know I would love to talk about La Dolce Vita or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and all oh, these movies yeah. that have that I love absolutely love the paper sneakers um but the one that I would be really really upset if someone else talked about was Moonstruck okay. <laughs> so I was like I have to I'm gonna force him to watch Moonstruck and Moonstruck is also a movie that people know by heart mm -hmm. um you know, the more I, I used to be embarrassed um, admitting that I liked it so much. But then when I ventured out of that uh, cave of shame, I realized how many people know and love that movie and can quote it by heart. And I think it's because the delivery and the timing of all of the lines and these brilliant actors who you named um, are so good that you just can watch it over and over again until it's like literally imprinted mm -hmm. in your memory. Um, and what you said about Olympia Dukakis is so important yeah. because she's the example of marrying for love. Mm -hmm. And so she asks Loretta, do you love him, Loretta? Nah, mom. Good. Because when you love him, 
they drive you crazy because they know they can. Yeah. And so she has found herself toward the twilight years with a man who's cheating on her. And she doesn't want her daughter to experience the same fate. So it's like practicality is supposed to protect the heart, right? Mm -hmm. That's what Loretta is operating under the assumption of. But it never works mm -hmm. because Nicolas Cage shows up, the moon shows up, yeah. and it completely disrupts the balance. Have I been a good wife? Yeah. I want you to stop seeing her. A man understands one day that his life is built on nothing. And that's a bad, crazy day. <laughs> Your life is not built on nothing. Yeah. Te amo. I think, you know, and, and she's very practical even in her approach to uh, her own marriage in that, like, she knows mm -hmm. that this man is cheating on her and she doesn't really address it for, for quite some time until the very end of the film and, like, they're all sitting at breakfast <laughs> and she's just like, have I been a good wife? And he's like, yeah. Uh -huh. And then she says, I want you to stop seeing her. And it, it, that's uh, it. That I mean, that is that is the extent of it. It's just look. I I'm here. I love you. I know what's happening. Just stop. And it, it's yeah. like there's there's no sort of like in that there is deep emotion, but the delivery of it is is emotionless. Mm, I know. And then you're so right. And then right after. He says that heart-wrenching line, a man wakes up one day and discovers that his life is built on nothing. And that's mm -hmm. when she really gets upset Yeah, and says, and then, oh my God, Olivia Dukakis. I mean, just that the, her face when she delivers the next line should, should have given her an Oscar, um, <laughs> which it did, which it did. Um, and she says, uh, your life is not built on nothing. And then she says a line that stunned me when I first watched the movie because I was a little kid and I didn't understand mm. love or life or bread or anything. When she says, I love you. And you know how some movies become touchstones and you watch them at different parts of your life and you realize how much you've learned and how much you've grown. Like mm -hmm. it's like going back to the same park you loved as a kid and realizing, Oh, it wasn't as big as I thought it was, etc." That is a line. That's a touchstone line that I use to track my growth every time I hear it because the first time I heard it, I couldn't believe she was saying, I love you to this man who had cheated on her. Mm -hmm. But now I hear it and I think, of course, of course she, she says, I love you because she knows underneath all of it, he's just scared to die. He really loves her. This, this, this Mona is just a, a cheap pile of trash mm -hmm. compared to the life that they share, the brownstone of feeling that they have. And so it makes so much sense to me now. Yeah. And then the, the thing about, you know, the question that she asks several times of different men uh, yes. is, you know, why do men chase women? And her answer okay. that she wants them to deliver and that, you know, uh, Johnny <laughs> gives her and she's like, just like, yes, you've given me my answer. <laughs> is that they're afraid of dying, right? And I think you, you see that play out in a number of different instances with, with different men in this movie. Uh, obviously her husband who, you know, we get that sort of, uh, we get that um, admission 
of from him. I think you know Johnny also is like afraid of death in mul- in a multiplicity of ways, where he basically only uh, proposes to Loretta because his mother is dying. And I think that that's it's a reflection both on his own mortality, but the sense of loss that would come come with the loss of his mother, uh, the sense of the loss of self, like the his identity, like his his, his place as like a son, uh, and that and that that piece of him being lost that he's trying to recapture something, and so it's like well, marriage, that's, that's, I mean, I'm 40 something. So I guess that's the, it's the only place where I could find that. So he's, uh, you know, proposing marriage out of his own, I I would say practical, like needs, but they're sort of impractical. (laughs) Um, And Uh then with the, uh, professor that we see a couple yes. times in this film um, yeah i was hoping you would get to him who yes. <laughs> was at John this Hardy. restaurant that they frequent uh and is always there with a young woman and we learn that these are women that are his students <laughs> um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know he's sort of trying to explain why he he ask these women out and it's like well there's no reason for you to we just let's just draw that line right now um but he (laughs) he's coming to lose that sense of himself and like getting closer to the sense of his own mortality as well whereby he is getting older and his separation between the excitement of his work and his excitement in his life are growing growing greater and greater and the only way that he sees to reinvigorate that is to go on these dates with these young women who are excited by him who are who find him interesting uh it's that you know these these men are crippled by the sense (laughs) that you know the only thing that will that they have left in life is death uh and they're the only then the only thing that they see as a pathway to escape that is to uh, carry on inappropriate relationships with with women. <laughs> right, and I don't know if you watch the director's commentary for the movies of these podcasts, but I watched this one a couple times, and John Patrick Shanley. It's, it's funny his insight into the professor character. He's essentially like, but he's essentially you know, doomed to fail because mm-hmm. he just finds himself at the end or at the bottom of a cocktail glass being thrown at him, you know, yeah. over and over and over again. Like that's the worst option to chase these young women who are excited by you momentarily. That's the most fleeting object. So I thought that was interesting that the writer himself had, you know, that uh, derogatory point of view toward that particular choice of warning against death. Michael, may I ask you? Please. Why do you think men chase women? (laughs) (laughs) Why do men chase women? Why do men chase women? Uh, Who? So, (laughs) man. Oh, Marie, you put me on the spot here in a way. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's such that's, a... that's correct. And, that is correct. And you know, I think that I think there's something to the idea of being afraid of death. Um, and I think that there's something to the idea that then the only the only pathways uh, to uh, the only pathways that exist to uh, a selfhood being expressed through a particular form of masculinity in which women become prizes uh, and that, mm-hmm. you know, there's some sense of, you know, winning at life, the more you can accumulate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that there's, there's something in the sort of socialization of men whereby women are incidental to uh, 
women are incidental to life <laughs> in that <laughs> and I, it sounds horrible because it is right like that and that's part of uh you know the 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 toxicity as it were to to use some of the 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 jargon of the times um Mm-hmm. in this in this form of masculinity where where the only thing that you're chasing after is the sense of pleasure uh and if the the pleasure that comes not even from the act of like sex and copulation and all of that but like what it means to be on the hunt what what it means mm-hmm. to to be voracious and consume so much and more and more. I think that that, like, that's where so many men are just deriving their pleasure and like have not been presented with enough options uh, that will, that are fulfilling uh, outside of that or, or that like are, are socially celebrated. Yeah. That makes sense to me. <laughs> yes, that's done. <laughs> I like that you repeated a couple times that type of of idea of being a man because yeah. it is like it's not all men, obviously. Yeah, right? it's a particular it's a particular form of expressing manhood, right? Like the idea yeah. that like to come into one's own as a man, and I, I I think about this all the time, and I think about like if if we are so loaded on this idea that man of manhood, like, is there any, is there any reclamation project to be had? Is it not that we should do away with masculinity and man and the idea of manhood altogether? And that like the, the, the search should be toward like just being able to relate to one another as human beings. Like, I, I know that sounds very Pollyanna-ish and like, but <laughs> but it is to say that like, if if we have so loaded up this this terminology and this these ideas with such toxicity that like, mm-hmm. are they worth reclaiming and like redefining uh, or are, or should we just do away with them altogether? Hmm. I think that's so interesting, and that really is the right question, right? I, I mean, I grew up around a lot of men, brothers, father. Like, I had nothing but brothers. And I think it's interesting, too, that we're talking about this in terms of the movie Moonstruck, which carries a lot of, you know, the Italian-American sense of masculinity and the toxicity that you mentioned, which I have direct experience with. Mm-hmm. And the other, And that's the other touchstone idea of this movie for me. When I was a little kid watching this movie, I had no idea what it what it meant for men to chase women or for women to chase men for that mm-hmm. matter or anybody to chase anybody. Now, um, as an older woman, I know the professor. I work mm-hmm. with the professor. Right. I know that father. I know and I, you know, and I know wonderful, wonderful people who identify as men who are just like Ronnie Camareri, who I think is the other uh, or mm. any other kind of masculinity that has more of the feminine in it that mm. um, is is uh, is not embarrassed of his own pathos, emotions, mm. um, love, passion of things like opera, yeah. and so the, the tenderness that exists in Ronnie Camareri and the refusal to fit into the other kind of masculinity is really interesting to me and and it also gives me hope. So when you talk about, is this project even something we want to engage in? I would say my little vote is for absolutely. Yes. I've known a Mm. lot of beautiful, wonderful, tender men who, uh, who, you know, would be really good at at helping to redefine Mm. that project. Who so, listen to women? Yeah. Who, in fact, put women as it, it at the helm of their stories? Because yeah. this movie was written by a man, yeah, and this movie was directed by a man, yeah. And I always wonder if I ever get to meet either of them. Um, I guess John Patrick Shanley specifically, since he wrote it. This was originally called The Bride and the Wolf, mm. and I wonder. I want to ask him, like, why a woman? 
Yeah. Why did you, I, I, I'd be interested to know. So yeah. Loretta is very much within the point of view of a man. Mm. I think he, but I think he does her so well. Yeah. So well. So yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what the answer is, Michael, but I, I really love the question. Please, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but I do want to contrast this with uh, like this discussion of this sort of the the masculine pursuit of women and saying like chasing and hunting and all all of that that gets uh, wrapped up in there and we can talk about wolves and all, all of that the imagery <laughs> and symbolism there but uh you know for rose loretta's mother she she knows that her husband is cheating on her and she has this moment where she goes out to dinner by herself and the professor is there and she invites the professor after his young student date has uh, thrown water in his face and, and walked out of the restaurant. She invites him to sit with, with her and she talks to him and she has a little moment of flirting with him, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, but she takes it right up to the edge mm-hmm. and then it's done. She's 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 done. And there's like... There's a little bit of chasing in her, but she doesn't need any more than that. Mm-hmm. Like she doesn't feel the same compulsion. And I, I'm curious to hear from you and sort of thinking about that in contrast to this idea that all of these men have to like, they feel this need to to fill that space with that, that, that longing with the chase that like she is content, it seems, to to just take it right there just far enough to where she she feels like you know it's it's not that she's looking for revenge she's just looking for some attention in a moment and to like really talk to a man and hear him and have her have him have him hear her and then that's it yeah yeah it's so interesting he never really makes it into the front room um you know, she herself gives an answer to that, which is, I don't need to do that because I know who I am. Mm. Because I know who I am. Mm-hmm. Because I know who I am. That comes yeah. up a lot in Moonstruck. At the end of that beautiful monologue that Cher gives in that brightly lit kitchen scene when they first um, kiss, you know, yeah. he says, why are you here? Why are you even talking to me? And she says, or what are you doing here? And she says, I'm telling you who you are mm-hmm. i'm telling you who you are yeah and these women uh loretta and rose are women who have a certain kind of unshakable core mm-hmm. and they are able to see clearly yeah. that doesn't mean that it doesn't that they don't get shaken but i think just when we happen to meet them in this movie they are they know who they are but they're searching. I think Rose is on a quest for knowledge and the knowledge she wants to know is why do men chase women? Mm-hmm. Um, and she wants that from the professor. And when he gives her that, yes, you're right. She does flirt. And you can almost see like fluttering in front of her eyes, all the reasons that she has to continue with this professor. Mm-hmm. She would almost not even be at fault. She would almost not even have to go to confession no. <laughs> if she engaged with this professor because she is being stepped out on yeah and so you know even even the catholic church actually that's probably not true but (laughs) she has reasons that she that she can do it and she doesn't and i think because she understands in that moment that it wouldn't lead to anything good Mm. and that's something that um that cosmo doesn't yet know yeah. that all the chasing and the hunting and the momentary pleasure and the fleetingness is just that it's fleeting and it doesn't lead anywhere good. It certainly doesn't lead anywhere better. Yeah. And Rose doesn't have to make the mistake. This, I mean, I, what do I know? Less than nothing. But what I would guess is Rose doesn't have to make the mistake to learn the lesson. She already knows the lesson. Mm. She knows who she is. That won't lead anywhere. That will lead to a cocktail in the face later on. And and so Mm -hmm. she just sits where she is in that uncomfortable heartache of not knowing where her husband is at at that moment. But that said, actually, come to think of it, I think she knows where he's going to be. 
I think she knows that mm. in the morning they will all be around that breakfast table that he's not gonna he's not finding anything important in Mona mm. what's important to him is is at that breakfast table and um one thing I thought one of the many things I thought was interesting about reading and and reading about what uh, Norman Jewison had to say about the film is that he very much felt like Moonstruck was an opera mm. and that sure. And I, I don't know if you know anything about opera. I know literally nothing. No, I don't, nothing. I don't nothing. know anything. <laughs> okay, great. No. So we're in the same boat together. Um, good. So let's learn together. So what he said was Cher is the lyric soprano. Nicholas Cage is the tenor. Danny Aiello is the baritone. Cosmo is the bass. Um, the aunt and uncle are the Greek chorus. And Olympia Dukakis is the contralto. And there's a foreshendo at the end of the film where all of the players, all of the actors in the opera come on stage for the first time all together mm-hmm. around that breakfast table in that absolutely necessary and classic and iconic scene at, at the end. Mm-hmm. Have you come to make peace with me? Yes, but you may not want to. Oh, Ronnie, of course I want to. But, Johnny, I mean, your mother was dying. How did she recover? I told my mother we were to be married, and she got well right away. I'm sure she did. It was a miracle. Oh, yeah. what a yeah. miracle. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny, I, I have something that I have to tell you. And I have something to tell you, but I must talk to you alone. No, I, I need my family around me now. Loretta, I can't marry you. What? If I marry you, my mother will die. What the hell are you talking about? We're engaged. Loretta, what are you talking about? I'm talking about a promise, okay? He proposed. Because my mother was dying, and now she's not. Oh, Johnny, you're 42 years old. She's still running your life. And you are a son who doesn't love his mother. You are a big liar, okay? Because I have a ring right here. Well, I must ask for that back. Uh, You know, all right, the engagement is off. In time, you will see that this is the best thing. In time, you'll drop dead and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. Loretta. What? Will you marry me? What? Uh, Where's the ring? Johnny, can I borrow that ring? But I do have a, I I have a background in theater. So I did the scene at the end when they all come around the table and all of the actors who we've kind of seen um, Loretta have little small scenes with her now in, again, another brightly lit kitchen. And it's all coming to a head. And, you know, as someone who, so the two of you and I are writers. Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about it in terms of plotting or structuring Mm -hmm. a story or a novel, it's interesting. Don't you think it's, it's to have that, that that scene where everybody has desire around mm-hmm. that table and 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 it all comes out into the open and whatever happens happens yeah for like it, it, it the i think the impulse would be to sort of settle each of these conflicts each of mm-hmm. these de- these needs and desires like individually right and then have everyone come together having settled everything in celebration, right? right? But like, no, everyone is there. Everyone has their, their, their different things and they all come to a head all sort of at the same time or one after the other. And everyone's got to address everything together. And that there's sort of something, there's there's something beautiful in that, right? That, that like we're, we're understanding, you know, we talk about, we talk about like, you know, knowing who you are. It's like, knowing who you are individually, but then knowing that this community holds you. Yeah, yeah, the family. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even, um, who is it? Rose Capamaggio, the, the, I, I guess it's the end of the uncle, they come in, they want to know what happened to their money. Yeah, yeah. So we have like the, the major and minor chords are being hit in the scene. And then someone we haven't spoken about yet is the grandpa, the grandfather, mm-hmm. who is closer to the old country than anybody. Yes. And, he, you know, he's just walking his dogs. He's just walking movie. his dogs. <laughs> and, like, howling to the moon. And admiring the beautiful uh, moon, he, the, the moon, Luna. Ex- exactly. 
exactly. He's yeah. He's pointing it out to to his dogs and and to all of us. You know, everybody stop. Look at the moon. He also has his desire, which is that his son should stop making a big deal about not paying for the wedding mm -hmm. and be prideful and pay for the wedding. So you know, many times um, with my students. If a scene is writing, it, it's feeling very flat. I'll, we'll go through and we'll track everybody's desire and make sure mm. that A, they, they have one, and B, that it's as big as it can be. Yeah. If you go through and you track everybody's desire in that last scene, everybody has one. Yeah. Which is which is kind of amazing. And then and then as you said, you have, you know, one of the major ones, which is I want you to stop seeing her. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just really lovely. Yeah. Can I tell you my my one issue with this film, and it's very shallow. Tell me all your issues with this film. Yes. I, I, okay, so <laughs> Loretta, Ronnie, they have their passionate moment. They they make love, and then they're you know okay. Then the the next day, she's like, "What have I done?" Uh, he tells her that he loves her. She slaps him twice and says, "Snap out of it," which is amazing. <laughs> And then he's just like, look, you go to the opera with me because the opera is, other than you, the opera is the one thing that I love. And we go mm -hmm. together and then I'll be good. I, I won't need anything else. Okay. She's like, all right, fine. Then she goes to get a makeover. She's going to get done up. And everything. I love where this is. First and, of all, I love where this is going. Yes, and, continue. you know, <laughs> it's totally fine. Mm hmm but she gets her hair done and she takes the gray out. Uh-huh. And I was going to be completely shallow with you right now, Marie. Do it. I was like, but she's so hot with the gray hair. Why are we <laughs> Why are we why are we doing this? Gosh. Wow. Okay. 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 That was my problem. I was like, okay, she's like Okay, she's she's got a new she's got a new lease on life. She's embracing uh -huh. passion and like she wants to look good for the evening. Totally with you. But they had to redo <laughs> her hair and just like make it jet black when she was so hot with the gray hair. Damn. Damn, I did not think that that's where you were going. <laughs> well, first of all, are you trying to win man of the year with uh, by no, saying that please, because no. That is just the kindest, most age-positive thing you could say. Do you really believe that? That the gray yeah. hair ma oh, makes her much hotter? Absolutely. I, I yeah. think that she looks... And not that she doesn't... She looks bad suddenly afterward. She's shared. She's, like, she's <laughs> Share. beautiful. Like, they do all... But but I do just think that they're... That like, one... Uh, even if she, even if we're just like basing the, her desire to like be like to glam it up and like to be as beautiful as possible because she has now this passionate love affair that she's like diving into, uh, you know, Ronnie wanted her so bad, like really wanted her with the gray <laughs> hair. Like she doesn't need uh, to do it. Like it, it, and we're just talking on those terms right there. Like with just respect to his desire. So I think that what it it sort of signaled to me was like sort of what the professor is going through with his like desire for young women is the sense that like in order to remain desirable, she has to appear more youthful. Mm. Well, you just said a mouthful there. Okay, so this is kind of blowing my mind in a few different ways. I, I'm in the process of catharsis listening to you because I, okay, well, right. So how the movie would probably answer that is she's literally dying the death out of her hair because mm. gray hair would yeah. be a symbol of death, right? And this entire movie is about death. Yeah. Um, so the gray hair would be a symbol of that, absolutely. And also, so, but also, the idea of gray hair to her would be giving up in a certain way. Mm. She's no longer interested in maintaining whatever her idea of a pleasant appearance or an attractive appearance would be. Mm -hmm. To her, the idea of gray hair would be 
giving up. Now, here I'm going to borrow some of your language for the op- for the other side of things, which is a particular idea of being a woman mm-hmm. and a particular idea of femininity. Yeah. And this is hitting me, you know, in important places because I am I am a woman who dyes the gray out of her hair. Mm. And I have also been told by people who mean a, a great deal to me that I should stop doing that, that the gray hair is much hotter. <laughs> that, and mm, I've been, yeah, and I, I tell I my partner it. that all the time. <laughs> See, like it, I understand the viewpoint and I've read the viewpoint and I see it on, you know, Twitter and social media a lot too, that women are beautiful with gray hair. What I will say is I think a woman should be allowed to enact whatever kind of physical yes. regimen or or thing that makes her feel a hundred and thousand percent like Certainly. herself and, and, and beautiful. So in that Absolutely. moment, if that's what Cher needed, or if that, sorry, if that's what Loretta <laughs> needed, um, then let her live, you know, that's her living deliciously in the way she wants to. So I guess that's what I would say. Yes. However, I will take that note with me and probably be thinking about it. <laughs> no, I, look, a hundred percent agree with you. Whenever my partner <laughs> says she's going to diet, I'm like, if it makes you happy, by all means, go for it. I want you to feel uh-huh. as good as you want to feel. I just think yeah. the gray hair is hotter. That's that's, that's the, all that, that that that's all it comes down to. And you know what? Well, good. Noted. I think that's wonderful. You know, your trophy for man of the year will be arriving. I think that's lovely. It's in the mail. And also, like, some of us, some some people perhaps aren't, what I, what I say sometimes is I'm not ready to be the white wizard yet. I'm still, you know, the dark wizard. And um, that's a whole palette gotcha. change that I'm not quite ready gotcha. for. Um, but thank you for that shallow note. I think it's actually quite deep. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you think I was going? Where did you think of my... I was thinking like, I love, I I love that transition when she, you know, finally is doing something for herself and goes in. She also seems to know everyone at the beauty salon, Mm -hmm. even though, but I guess that's the neighborhood. Everybody knows everyone. Um, and then she, she runs into those nuns which I think is hilarious and also, you know, very ironic and typical and then goes home and has that brief interlude with like the hot sacks playing as she Mm -hmm. spreads out all of her wares that she's bought throughout the day. And she's in her newly darkened hair with no gray. Mm -hmm. She puts that lipstick on in that front room with like, and I just think it's such an interesting brief, interlude to have in the film because it's not necessary but it's there mm. just for kind of like her pleasure yeah so i, I don't know i I'm, i was thinking maybe you would however you were circling those three little scenes her you know montage of getting beautiful um i was into that because i think it's like a smaller moment in the film mm. but i think it's really important because again it's like her desire yeah her day of shopping which i think is really cool yeah for sure yeah <laughs> i was just being incredibly shallow that's okay i have space for that that's all that's all welcome <laughs> and that's what i to be honest like that's that's why i like it's one of the many reasons i like moonstruck is that it exists on the bigger level and it exists it exists on the macro and micro mm-hmm. levels like you have the big moments like the snap out of it moments and the iconic her kicking the can down the street just absolutely annihilated by love yeah um these are the big operatic moments mm-hmm. in the film but then you have the quieter ones yeah where you know she's sitting in that front room listening to music just feeling herself and, and getting ready for her first date in probably a while mm-hmm. i think that's beautiful too Marie, what's one lasting image that sticks with you from Moonstruck? Okay, so 
It's funny that we're talking about this now because I have two small ones. Okay. So two from, from the, the, the micro level of the movie. Um, the one is in that scene when she's in the front room and it's just a little bizarre note. And if I ever met anyone who had anything to do with Moonstruck, I would ask them, well, I guess it would be Cher. So she takes her lipstick out and she's in front of the mirror and mm-hmm. she puts the lipstick on one half of her top lip, lip mm-hmm. and stops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was always yeah. like, why? <laughs> why did she just put her lipstick on one half of her top lip? Like, I have never seen a woman do that. I've never done that. Yeah. And clearly, you know, but if Cher does it, clearly it's the ideal. So if I ever, if I ever get to meet Cher, well, hopefully I'll have a lot more important things to talk to her about. <laughs> but um, I would love to ask her, like, why did you put your lipstick on only the top half of your upper lip? I just thought that that's just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And then the other more, you know, the actual answer to your question is another very small moment mm-hmm. um, that I totally love, an image that stays with me and that I think got her the Oscar, is that um, is it comes when, and we haven't talked about this little scene yet, when she's seen Johnny off at the airport and she's watching out the window, she's watching his plane out the window and the actual like old world uh, little Nona says mm. to her, do you have someone on that plane? Because mm. I put a curse on that plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then explains that she has her own story and her own desire. And she tells Cher, like that plane's going down mm. for this reason. And the moment I'm thinking of is Cher says, I don't believe in curses. And the woman says, yeah, I don't believe in them either. And then you see Cher's reflection in the window mm-hmm. as she very briefly considers, yeah. could that be true? And then she shakes it off. Nah. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I always get so excited when that little moment comes up. And I've done it to myself a lot in my life. Like, mm. could that be true? And then I shake it off and say nah, the way she does it in the movie. Because I think it's just... You just know everything she's thinking in that moment. And I guess that is why she's a good actor, because she's able to show all of that on her face. I know this is a very small moment, but I don't know. It it stays with me, and it's very real. It's very human. And um, it's also kind of funny that she would be like, is that plane going to crash into the sea? (laughs) Nah. But she thinks about it for a moment. And I wonder... She considers it. Do I believe in curses? So anyway, that's the small moment that kind of counterbalances the giant sweeping ones, like Mm. kicking the can down the street. May I ask you a question now? Please. Okay. Um, And please understand that I have all the space in the world for people not liking the things that I like. In fact, Mm -hmm. I, I, I welcome it. What did you think of the movie? Did you like it? Oh, so I'd seen Moonstruck uh, a few years ago, and I really liked it. Um, I I just thought it was funny. <laughs> I, thought, I think I think, and and it's really uh, it's the Ronnie character is hilarious to me um, mm-hmm. because one because of my relationship to Nicolas Cage and never knowing do I think Nicolas Cage is brilliant or awful. <laughs> um, <Right>. and he, <laughs> he just he sort of walks that line in this movie <laughs> like um and so there there's that and i think that that like but it that character and his performance lends itself so well the, to the tumultuous nature of this love affair and like and how quickly it unfolds um and to see then the loretta character just get so swept up in it and like be all in it's i find it hilarious but then like that that i mean it goes to sort of just like what the movie is uh, it's sort of cruxes it's like they're moonstruck like this the the what the moon has done to them has exposed them to exactly what their passions and desires are with with mm-hmm. no warning it, it's just here and they have to act it feels like immediately 
Um, and I think that there's just a lot of comedy that comes from <laughs> all of the what what they what they deem necessary within the span of like 48 hours. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's also a movie that takes place during a short amount of time. You're so right. I think a lot hangs in the performance of Nicolas Cage because it so easily could have been buffoonish. Mm-hmm. But you really believe that he believes what he's saying. Yeah. And he doesn't play it for laughs. He is deathly, literally deathly serious. And I think that, yeah, like in movies like Raising Arizona, where you do understand that he's more of, you know, the absurd buffoon. Yeah. But here, it's, um, I think a lot, this movie would not have been, it would not have been as successful if he had been uh, Peter Gallagher, for example, mm. which is um, who they were originally thinking of casting, I mm. believe. But Cher was the one who was like, it has to be Nicolas Cage. Mm. So she really knew. But yeah, you're so there's, right. There's like, the brilliance of Cher. His character. <laughs> it's just whatever Cher says, just do. <laughs> Put your lipstick on only half of your lips. I'm Did, telling you. I, I mean, thing. I'm saying, Marie, like, this is, is this not the move that you're going to start making? I think showing up to, like, <laughs> readings with just one, your upper lip just half covered in lipstick. I think this is. That's right. When they start talking about me, you will know that it's because <laughs> of Cher. And, but, I mean, but I will continue to dye the gray out though and that's the uh that's the trade so sorry about that got it you know no problem again do what makes you feel good <gasps> thank you that's right because you know what life is really short and everything is temporary everything but that doesn't ex- <laughs> but that doesn't excuse anything and that's the point of food truck <laughs> beautiful great marie thank you so much for joining me Michael, this has been a true delight. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Open Forum, a podcast from Lit Hub Radio, produced by Eliza Smith and Justin Alvarez, and hosted by me, Michael Denzel Smith. Feel free to like, comment, subscribe to Open Forum wherever you get your podcasts, and or sign up for the Lit Hub newsletter to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Next week, if you're headed to your 10-year high school reunion in Tucson and feel like your life isn't very impressive, just tell everyone you invented post-its. 